You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. We've been in the book of Acts lately, and for those of you who've been following along with us, this has been a uh, journey since probably about uh, March of 2020. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been talking about what it means to be a life-changing church. And along the way, we've seen stories of miracles. We've seen stories of peril, conflict, and triumph as the apostles make their way through the then-known ancient world, sharing the gospel and planting churches and changing the world as they go. My hope for us is that we would be a church that learns from these wonderful stories, these wonderful truths, so that we might be a church that changes lives as well, and that we might learn what it truly means to be the church. So our journey finds us in Acts chapter 20 today, so if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, we'll actually be following this along today as well. And the title of my sermon today is, When the Sermon Bores You to Death. And I'm going to promise try to, to try and not do that for you today. I'm trying to try and keep you attentive and not uh, go on too long here. Um, and so, uh, but this is a funny little story in the book of Acts, but I want to kind of get to it together. But the title of the message is, When the Sermon Bores You to Death. Now, if you're in Acts chapter 20, I'm just going to give you a little background on this to start us off with. First of all, this is uh, Paul's third missionary journey. He has taken uh, two previous missionary journey trips. The first one with Barnabas, the second one with Silas, and now with Silas and Timothy and Titus, some of his companions, making his way through the then-known world. We know the third missionary journey takes him into Europe for the first time, so there's parts of Europe that are finally being touched with the gospel message. If you remember last week's message, there was a riot that broke out in uh, Ephesus, and it was deemed that it was kind of unsafe for Paul to be there. So the uh, brothers and sisters and the elders and the disciples decided, you know, it'd be best if you kind of left Ephesus for a little while. And so Paul does that. He leaves Ephesus. He makes his way through Macedonia. And uh, he had sent Titus to the church in Corinth to bring some messages and to resolve some disputes. And uh, Paul was hoping to meet up with Titus along the way, but along the way, Titus is delayed, and so Paul is really worried because he's thinking to himself, did something happen to Titus? Did something happen uh, in the church in Corinth? Because if you read the book of Corinthians, you'll recognize that it wasn't an easy message that Paul brought to the church in Corinth, so he was a little concerned that maybe the church uh, did something to him. So Paul goes on to Macedonia, and eventually he finally connects with Titus, much to his relief, you know, you couldn't just call or text if you were running late in ancient times. Typically, that was done by foot, by, by courier, uh, by message that was sent via letter. So um, Paul really had no idea where Titus was, but he's relieved to hear that Titus is okay. He's reunited with them in Macedonia. And uh, so he travels to Troas as well. And uh, Paul eventually spends three months in, in the uh, nation of Greece. He uh, sets up shop there, and it's while he's uh, in Greece that he resides at the city of Corinth, and there he writes the book of Romans. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, uh, Paul spent some time in Corinth writing this out uh, to give us the message of the book of Romans. And then uh, from there, we see that Paul meets seven men, and he connects with them, and their names are listed there in the first few verses there. 
They're kind of difficult to pronounce, so we won't go through that today, although I can pronounce them, just so you know. Uh, but there are seven men, and one is from each of the different churches in Asia. And Paul would take a collection for the persecuted church, the saints in Jerusalem. And every church would make a donation, and they would bring it with trusted men. Those trusted men would deliver it to Paul. And then Paul, when he took it back to report to Jerusalem, he would then bring them, bring that offering to the churches. So he meets with these seven men. They give him this offering, and he heads back, hopes to head back to Jerusalem. Now, before he goes, he stays in Troas for about seven days. And while he's in Troas, we see this story unfold in verse 7 of Acts chapter 20. So let's look there together. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued the message until midnight. Now you can underline that. So we're getting the idea that Paul is speaking for a very long time here. Spoke until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was seeking into a deep sleep. How many know what that's like? You sit in a class lecture, or you sit in, uh, in an orientation, and you feel yourself starting to get a little drowsy, maybe starting to doze off. Maybe that will happen to you today. I pray not. Hopefully you didn't stay up too late last night. But uh, you started to be overcome by sleep, verse 9. And as Paul continued to speak, it says that Paul continued speaking. So we, get that, we see that a couple times where it's, it's midnight, it's late, and Paul continues to speak. And while he continues to speak, he, uh, Eutychus falls down from a third-story window and is taken up dead. Now that's a pretty significant thing right there for a young man to be sitting in the window, falling asleep, falls out the window, and is dead on the ground. Verse 10, though, says, Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him, and says, Do not trouble yourself, for life is in him. Now when he had come up, he broke bread and eaten and talked for a long while, even till daybreak. Then he departed, and they brought the young man alive, and they were not a little comforted. That's a phrase that means that they were greatly comforted by what had happened. Now, have you ever listened to a boring sermon? I'm sure you have, and don't answer that if it refers to my sermon although I'm sure there's been times where I've spoken and have bored myself up here. So sometimes I'll be up here and I'll be like, you know, this is just not going really well, or this is not really working. But midway through, you're kind of like, I wish I could have a do-over on this one. But somehow, God still ministers and he still blesses people in spite of it. We've all sat through boring sermons. Yeah, but I would dare say that none of us have ever died from a boring sermon. Maybe died of embarrassment if someone nudged us like our husband or our spouse, you know, and they nudged us because we were falling asleep or mom or dad hits the back of our head because we were falling asleep. We've died of maybe embarrassment, but none of us have ever died from falling asleep in church. You know, we might get bored to death, but we're never in actual danger of dying. A boring sermon is a sermon that seems to go on and on forever with no end in sight. As I always like to say with people, when it comes to a message, make sure that when you're driving somewhere, you know where you're going. Because if you don't know where you're going, the people that are riding with you have no idea where you're going either. So always have an idea where you want to go with that. I went to school with a, a, an African pastor named Titus, uh, Reverend Titus Marefu. And he had this quote to, uh, to say about long sermons. And he said this simply, the first 40 minutes of the sermon is of God. 
The second 40 minutes of the sermon is of man, and the third 40 minutes of the sermon is the devil. Now what it means by that is that if it's gone on too long, it's like you've overstayed your welcome, and this is no longer like spiritual anymore. This is just painful. And so this is interesting because he's an African pastor, and in Africa, you know, the, the average length of sermons is at least three hours long. So for him to say that, I found that to be incredibly interesting. I'm also reminded that of my time at Bible college, uh, that we would have uh, chapel services every day of the week except Friday. And so every day of the week we'd go and sit in chapel, and we'd have our assigned seats, and uh, they would take attendance to make sure that we went there. That was part of our education. And so we would have these chapel services, and it was always around 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock, right before lunch. So you got people that are tired, you got people that are hungry, and we have to sit there, and sometimes the sermons were good, and sometimes the sermons were not good. And my friend Derek worked at Taco Bell till midnight, and he usually get back at the college around 1 a.m. I would know this because he would always wake up my roommate in our college dorm room, and he would wake me up too by default. And every so often he would bring food and he would bring burritos and things like that. And uh, just so happened that one time I actually made the mistake of actually eating a burrito at 1 a.m. And I regretted that later. It was painful. But he would, so he worked at Taco Bell. And so he would work the late shift. He would come home at 1 a.m. and he wouldn't get much sleep. And so uh, that didn't help uh, Derek out the next day. That when he was in chapel, it was usually didn't work out well for him. And so in chapel, we would sit in these chapels, and, and so in the chapel would be these really long wooden pews. They are painted white. They had blue cushions on them, but the back of the pew is hard as a rock. And so, you know, one day uh, we're in chapel, and Derek is sitting there. He had a late night at work, and so the speaker is speaking. Let's just say he wasn't as interesting as we would like him to be when it comes to messages. And so he is uh, preaching, and my, I'm watching my friend Derek from across the chapel room because, like, we have assigned seating. And I'm just watching where he's sitting, and he's starting to nod off a little bit. We can tell that he's nodding off because he's sitting there, and while he's nodding off, the back of his head is starting to droop a little bit each time that he starts to fall asleep. Now he catches himself. You know, you, when you are starting to fall asleep, sometimes you catch yourself, and you shake it off, and you wake yourself up again. And so, but he's starting to fade and fade pretty quickly. The chapel speaker catches note of this, uh, uh, unhappy that Derek is falling asleep through his great sermon. And so what he does is like, so my friend is sitting on this side of the, the auditorium where we're having chapel. And so the speaker notices that the man is starting to fall asleep and he starts to come to this side of the chapel uh, platform and starts speaking louder as though somehow, like, you're not going to fall asleep during my sermon. I'm going to make sure of it. And he's just singling him out. He didn't call him by name or anything like that, but it's clear that he's, he recognizes that this man is falling asleep, and he's trying to get his attention. It didn't really have much of an effect on him whatsoever. Well, at some point in time, while the speaker is speaking, he must have done something. I forget if he, he clapped or, or shouted or said something really loudly, and Derek all of a sudden slips into sleep in that moment. And so he finally, his neck gives way, he, his head falls back in sleep, and he bangs his head on the back of the, the pew. So he goes from nodding off, nodding off, to wham, hits his head on the back of the pew. And immediately, like, everybody heard it, and then a shout comes out from Derek as he is, hits his head on the back of the pew. Ah! Oh! 
as he is woken up in the middle of that. Let's just say it's sometimes dangerous to fall asleep in the middle of a sermon. And we all had a good laugh at it, but we felt bad for him after. And the, the Apostle Paul is preaching. Can you imagine this? In chapter 20, the Apostle Paul's preaching actually puts someone to sleep. Can you believe that? The Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian mind of the first century, he wrote 75% of the New Testament, and someone found him boring. Now, whether Paul was actually boring or this young man was tired, we don't know. Um, but needless to say, Paul's preaching did not keep him awake. So here we have it tells us that it's a Sunday, and uh, it's interesting, too, because you might ask yourself, well, why do we meet on Sundays as opposed to Saturdays? Like, why do we have church today instead of yesterday? And for the New Testament church, they would always say, it's the Lord's Day. And that always meant something very uh, simple. It meant simply that the day that Jesus rose from the dead would always be called the Lord's Day. And so that was the day that they typically gathered together for worship, different from the Sabbath from the Old Testament. So Old Covenant, Sabbath, Saturday. New Covenant, New Testament, the the resurrection of Christ, the Lord's Day on Sunday. And it was evening, too, because at that time, uh, people worked during the day, and Sunday wasn't considered like a weekend day or a holiday, but it was just a regular work day like every other day. So people worked during the day, and here we see that it's a Sunday evening service, one of the first Sunday evening services mentioned in the uh, book of Acts in the New Testament. And so it's already late at night. We can tell that because it says that they had lamps lit and that Paul was preaching towards midnight. So we know it's nighttime that this is happening. And so they're meeting, and they're meeting in this upper room. And the upper room doesn't mean anything significant like they had a tradition of meeting in the upper room or anything like that. What it meant is that typically that ancient houses, that they had a a couple different levels. Sometimes they'd have a a two-level dwelling or a three-level dwelling. And usually on the first floor was the rooms that you would sleep in and the place where you would cook. And so the uh, bottom floor had smaller rooms because that's where you typically went to sleep. Now, the upper rooms were meeting areas. This would be the place where you would entertain guests or have like a large gathering or a banquet. And so uh, here we see that up in the upper room on the third floor of this particular house is a large meeting space. And so the church gathers together, all the believers gather together in Troas, and it's nighttime, and they've got the torches lit, and the room is packed. And as you can imagine, it's maybe a little hot, maybe a little stuffy, and they're trying to breathe through their masks, you know, and they're trying to be able to stay awake. And so uh, we see that Eutychus starts to drift off a little bit. And how old is he? We don't really know exactly um, how old he is. But we know that he's probably maybe in his teens or early 20s. That's what we speculate to, most uh, scholars agree to. And so he's sitting on this, uh, this windowsill with an open window. Now, it's not like we had Anderson windows and doors back then. Typically, the only thing that was in that window was, you know, you'd pull a wooden gate shut to close the window, and if you wanted some ventilation, you would leave it open. And so here's Eutychus just sitting in the windowsill, and he's listening to Paul, and it's getting late, and Paul's going on, and he's going on, and he's going on, and Eutychus probably had a long day at work, and he's trying to do his best to listen, but yet at the same time, he's, he's starting to doze off and starting to fall asleep, and probably sitting in a third-floor window to catch a nap was probably not the best idea in the world. I don't know if he was kind of doing like you've ever been driving 
and you start to fall asleep at the wheel. So what do you do? You roll the window down, right? And you turn the radio up real loud. It absolutely does nothing, of course, but you're trying to keep yourself awake. And so I don't know if Eutychus was simply saying to himself, okay, if I buy this open window, then things will go better for me. Well, as we see, it doesn't quite uh, happen the way you might want it to happen. So take a look at verse 9 with me. And it says, In a window sat a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep, and he was overcome by sleep as Paul continued speaking, and he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. One thing I love about the book of Acts is it's never boring. There's always something happening. This young man is listening to Paul and says he's sinking into a deep sleep. Eventually he's overcome with sleep. In other words, he could no longer fight the sleepiness, and his body gave in and fell asleep. He couldn't stay awake as Paul continued speaking. And Eutychus had checked out of his sermon a while ago, but the preacher kept going. Sometimes that happens too. He's like, and listen, just so you know too, I'm not going to point you out if you fall asleep. Sometimes I just recognize you might have worked the third shift. Sometimes you might have had a hard day, and you made it to church. Praise God, you made it to church. And uh, as long as you're not snoring, we're probably not going to bother you. Rest in the Lord, brother. Rest in the Lord, sister. It's okay. Um, you know, we hope that by osmosis that you'll somehow get something out of the sermon. But I'll never point you out or embarrass you because you fell asleep. But Eutychus falls asleep during, as Paul continues to go on and on, and he falls out the window, falling three stories to his death. And as you can imagine, this brings a church service to a complete stop. Paul stops preaching, everybody stops what they're doing, and the service stops right then and there, and everybody goes out to see what happened to Eutychus. And it says when it means that he was taken up dead, it means that somebody actually checked on him and said, okay, this guy is dead. They checked his pulse, checked his breathing, and he is dead. Now, this is probably Luke. Um, Most commentaries agree because Paul uh, traveled with Luke, and Luke actually was a doctor. And this is just a wonderful thing for us to keep in mind today, too, especially as we think about the church as we think about medical breakthroughs, as we think about all the things that are going on with the world today, keep in mind that the apostolic ministry of Paul was partnered with a physician named Luke. That They traveled together, and Luke stayed with him throughout his entire ministry, all the way up until his imprisonment and death. And there's something for us to learn today, to, you know, that we sometimes think it's science and it's the church. We sometimes think it's the apostolic ministry and we think that it's doctors. And we think that they can't come together. But if you've got a godly doctor that loves the Lord and you've got a, 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 an evangelist, a speaker who operates in the power of the Spirit, the two can actually go together and work together. So the, they check on him and he's... Uh, determined that Eutychus is dead. And Paul rushes down to where the young man was. He, he, he takes a, a keen interest in this young man, and he rushes to where he is, and he says this in verse uh, 10 and 11. And it says, Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him, and said, Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. And when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked for a long while, even till daybreak. He departed, and they brought the young man alive, and they were not a little comforted. This means that they were greatly comforted by this. So what it's saying here is saying that Paul rushes down and he says, uh, do not trouble yourself because there's life still in him. Did Paul know something that they didn't know? Was Eutychus just unconscious and that they weren't aware that he was really alive? I mean, he fell from three stories, so that's not a small fall by any stretch of the imagination. 
Is Paul just simply declaring something in faith here, believing that Eutychus hadn't died? No, probably more likely what we see here is this is very similar to what Elijah and Elisha did when someone died. When someone would pass away and Elijah or Elisha would pray for them, we see this in First and Second Kings, that he would typically lay on them or to take them up and then life would restore back to them. Miraculously, Eutychus is raised from the dead because of Paul. We see that here because, and by the way, the name Eutychus means fortunate, which I think fits because here's this guy that fell out the window and died and somehow, you know, God is able to raise him back up to the, from the dead and he's alive even though he should have been dead and that's a pretty fortunate thing. But I want you to think about this too is that, you know, here Paul, uh, you know, takes him up and all of a sudden life goes back into uh, Eutychus' lungs. He breathes, he gets a pulse back and he's awake and alert. We see in verse 11 it says, and, and when he, he, speaking of Eutychus, had come up, they uh, broke bread and eaten. And then it says, and talked for a long while, even till daybreak. Now, this is not like, okay, uh, Eutychus is talking. But then Paul goes on to preach until daybreak. So it kind of goes like this. Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the window, ends up dead. Paul goes and raises him from the dead and says, okay, get back upstairs. I'm only three points into my seven-point sermon. I still have points to go over here. So uh, the sermon's not done, so go back upstairs. So he goes back up, and they finish the sermon, and Paul preaches until daybreak. Now keep in mind that they were already there until midnight. So Paul is just going on with them, preaching, sharing with them, and that they're, they're being ministered to. And then we also see something very interesting here as well. We see that they break bread together. Now, we might simply say, well, okay, well, they were having fellowship, and they just happened to eat something, and, you know, it was maybe one of those after-service potlucks that we are so uh, want to have, or maybe they had coffee hour. No, what we see here is that whenever the early church got together, they always celebrated communion. They always celebrated the Lord's table. Because Jesus had said to them, do this in remembrance of me. And so the early church, whenever they met, which was often daily, they would partake of communion, the bread and the cup, which was remembrance of what? The death and resurrection of Jesus. So I would imagine that this particular time where they're taking communion together has even greater significance to them because here they have in their midst a young man who is embodying just that, one who died and rose again. And there's a special significance when we understand that we've been taken from life, from death to life. We've been raised to life because of Christ. Now, this is a, a somewhat amusing story, of course. And uh, it's as amazing as this story is, I don't want to focus on the miracle of the young man being raised from the dead, but I want to focus on the value of preaching to awaken us from death to life. Many are spiritually dead and don't even know it. Seriously, many people are spiritually dead and they don't even know it. But it's the preaching of the word that makes us alive. You can sit under the preaching of the gospel and not be changed. Did you know that? You can literally sit in a church your entire life and hear the gospel preached and still be the same grouchy, mean-spirited, sinful, hateful person and never be changed. Why? Because preaching alone doesn't change somebody. Preaching changes somebody when they hear it, when they have faith, they'll believe it, when they accept it as their own, and when they live it out. 
That's when preaching changes somebody. You can uh, be in church your entire life and not have a relationship with God at all. You can attend Living Hope for the whole time I've been here and not be a Christian. That would be hard to do, but it is possible. Why? Because we have to listen to the word. We have to hear it. And it must be accompanied by faith in order to be believed and lived by. But it all begins with the hearing of the preaching of the word, whether it's boring or not. Now, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. In order to have saving faith, a person must first hear the word and respond. But most people don't realize how lost and how spiritually dead they are without Jesus. A Christian apologist once wrote, Jesus did not come into this world to make bad people good, but instead he came to make dead people alive. So it's, it's all about the approach. If you're coming to church to be good in your own strength, you'll never be it. You won't. You could be a good person, but in terms of being good and right by God's standards, you will never meet that standard. But when you realize that you're dead in sin, need to be made alive in Christ. That's really important. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll kind of emphasize this a little bit more. You still with me today? I want you to take a look at this with me. Ephesians chapter 2 illustrates this beautifully, that we actually can be spiritually dead and not know it. Okay. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, it says, by grace through faith, and you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. As one writer put it, let me put it to you this way. Those three verses right there breaks down like this. As one author put it, first of all, we got to recognize that we were dead. Verse 1. Think about what it means to be dead. You can't, the dead cannot hear. They don't hunger. They don't thirst. They cannot speak or communicate. They're unable to feel, sense, or see. They're completely cut off from the living. And Paul, who also wrote Ephesians, says that they were once, we were once, dead in our sins. But you can say to me, well, Pastor Dan, I'm not dead. Okay? And that's true. You're not physically dead. You're alive and right here. But you can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. Spiritually dead means that you're unsaved and unable to understand who God is. Spiritually dead means that God is not even a part of your thoughts throughout the day. Listen to me. Okay, there's a, there's, this is huge. Spiritually dead means that God doesn't even enter into the picture of your daily life. God's not even a part of the equation. He's not in your thoughts. He, his words don't guide you. He's not a, a, a driving force in the things and decisions you make. You know, he doesn't even enter the picture. You live each day without talking to him, looking for him, or living for him. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. As one author says, we don't need resuscitation. We need a resurrection. Resuscitation is like, well, bring me back to where I was. You know, but we don't need to be raised up to the same kind of person we used to be. What we need is resurrection. And resurrection only happens if you're dead. It only happens when you recognize I'm spiritually dead and I need Christ in my life. And that comes when you say, you know, I'm, I'm leaving 
the old ways behind. I'm leaving the past behind, and I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I'm leaving that behind. I'm dying to the old way of life and choosing a new life in Christ. Being a Christian, loving Jesus, following his words and his commands, living by his truth. But when we do that, we go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Secondly, we were disobedient. Three things we follow. Before we were saved, we walked according to the ways of this world. Now, what does that mean? It means that we follow the things that the world considered was important. We, consider, we follow what the world says you should chase after, after. Chasing after the world's standards. It's God's and it's gold. To live for the world is to live apart from God. So we follow the ways of this world instead of God's ways. That makes us disobedient. We follow the prince of the power of the air. That is the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. This speaks of the devil. Well, pastor, I don't follow the devil. I know you don't. But he doesn't need you to follow him. He just needs you to not follow God. The devil doesn't care if you worship him or not. He just doesn't want you following God. So what does it say? That he is uh, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, uh, the, the, the one who is at work in the, the, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. This means that people uh, who would rather do their own thing than what God says. He doesn't even need you to do what he says. He just needs you to not do what God says. So when we're talking about disobedience today, when we're dead in sin and we're dead in disobedience, it means that we're following after the things uh, that are contrary to God. The devil doesn't care if you live for him or not. He just doesn't want you living for God. He doesn't want you following him. He doesn't want you walking in obedience to him. So we follow the ways of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. And we followed our own desires. When you're being led by your own desires instead of godly desires, that means you are living apart from God. Wanting what we want above what is actually right. Getting what we desire at any cost, regardless of who it hurts or how it makes people feel. Greed, lust, anger, violence, pride, the things that put us at the center of life instead of putting God at the center. When we're led by these things, we're far from God and separated from Him spiritually. The third point he makes, we're doomed. And you say, well, that's kind of fatalistic, Pastor. I think I'm a pretty good person, and I think I'm going to turn out okay. But listen, the Scriptures are clear that if we are not following God, if we don't belong to Him, if we're not saved, we are doomed. And think about it this way. It says, verse 3 says that we're children of wrath. God is a God of love, but God is also a God of righteousness and justice. Listen, how many times have we said this before? Well, we've gotten mad at the world that we live in today because someone gets away with something they shouldn't do. When injustice happens, when wickedness happens, when we see, uh, you know, oppression, when we see racism, when we see, you know, uh, you know, child trafficking, when we see the things and the wickedness of this world, and we say someone needs to hold them accountable. They can't get away with this. We have this kind of uh, inward uh, righteous anger that rises up within us. And we say, God, do something about that. Do something about those people so that something happens. But yet, if we're appealing to God's righteousness and his justice, we have to understand that he can't be selective in how he chooses to apply that. God's righteousness and justice is the same no matter what. His standards are the same for the greatest of sins to the smallest of them. 
All people, both great and small, will one day stand before God. And every act of a disobedience, great or small, God will judge and judge each man according to his works. When faced with this prospect, the possibility that not one of us are without guilt and that we all have to answer for what we've done, it's sobering and it's saddening. We know ourselves too well. We know our shortcomings. Like as good as we present ourselves, we still know ourselves. As good as we think that we're doing or the show that we make of ourselves, when we seem like we have it all together, when we seem like we're doing okay, when we do that, we still know ourselves when we're by ourselves. We still know the truth about the way that we really think, the way that we really live, the way that we really act. And that if we were confronted with that, the reality of that, that would wake us up to recognize we're not as great as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. We're not even okay as we think we are. And we think that no one else sees, but God sees exactly what we're like. And the thought of Judgment Day is both troubling and frightening, hopeless and helpless without God. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. There's more to this. Aren't you glad that we don't just leave it at that portion? You know, we could have stopped there and be like, you guys are doomed. Sorry. But God didn't leave us in that state. And so, and so we see uh, Ephesians 2 goes on to say in verse 4, but God. I want you to think about those two words for a moment and how powerful those two words are. Where we would be today if it weren't for God. What would be our life be like if not God had intervened? And so those two words indicate to us that God in his grace and his goodness and his mercy, he stepped into the scene. We were hopeless and helpless, but he came in and made a way. Verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. And in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what did we learn from that? We were hopeless and helpless, but there is hope because God has shown us his mercy. Verse 4. Mercy means undeserved kindness. Like, you know, when you come home late, you know, from, you know, hanging out with your friends as a kid and mom and dad are mad at you, they are a little mad at you at the beginning, well, a lot mad at you. And then later on, they show you love after they kind of explain to you why you shouldn't do that anymore. It's in God, in their great mercy that you're not thrown out of the house or disowned or uh, you know, made homeless because you made a mistake. But mercy is undeserved kindness. It says that God is rich in mercy. What that means is that his mercy is deep and gracious, and it came at a great price. The, the mercy we experience today is because Jesus Christ gave his life for us. God showed us undeserved kindness by giving us a chance to be saved. He sent Jesus, his own son, into the world that we would have a chance to be forgiven and saved. And we didn't deserve this, but God in his ever-loving kindness has made it available to us. So we have his mercy, and that's a good thing. 
Secondly, he showed us love. Because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, even in our hopeless estate, God loved us and demonstrated his love by sending his son. The word for love here is agape. Now, it's a Greek word that means unconditional love. Love without pretense. Love without condition. This is a love that is so different than the rest of the world today. This is a love that isn't, isn't like anything that you'll experience on this planet. It's unconditional. It's a love that doesn't demand anything in return. It's the love of God that's shown to us unconditionally. When we look at our condition, you ever felt bad about the way you are? You ever make a mistake and kind of said to yourself, you know, I just don't like the person that I am. I don't like what I've become. You have that sense of shame and guilt and that there's been things that you've tried to get victory over but you find yourself going back to. And the shame of that is, can be really strong to the point that you feel like you don't deserve anything that's good in this life. You don't deserve being loved by the people that care about you when you keep messing up and making mistakes. And you certainly don't think that you should be loved by God. But understand this, when we are at our worst condition, when we are at our furthest from God, God loved us and Jesus was sent into this world so that we might know God's love. It's in his love that we're made alive. We know who God is now. God's not a mystery. He's not a secret. We know who God is and what he's like because we have Jesus as our example to show us. God has a face. God has a name, and his name is Jesus. In his love, he has raised us. He has taken us from death to life, from sin to forgiveness, and now we are no longer seated in the rubbish pile of this world. We're no longer outcasts from God. We're no longer on the outer edge uh, look, wanting to look in and to, to know God, but rather now we've been brought from the graveyard to the courtroom of Jesus. We've been brought from the very uh, depths of despair and death into the place where we can know and experience God. So we've seen God's mercy, we've seen God's love, but he showed us his grace. Verses 7 through 10, for by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. We didn't get into heaven because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did. There's nothing that we can do that we can somehow earn our way into heaven. Jesus doesn't look at things and say, okay, you are part of Awana. You are part of the Rotary Club. You're part of the American Legion. Uh, you did good things. You gave to the food bank. You know, you tried to live a good life. You occasionally gave to the firemen's charity when you saw them in the streets with their boots collecting money, and you did that. So you've earned enough uh, tokens that you can get into heaven. It's not that way. You don't get into heaven by being a good person. You get into heaven because Jesus is the door that has been opened to us through faith that we make and be able to go into heaven through him. It's by what he's done, not because of what we have done. So that in that case, none of us can boast. It's not, what he took, it's not only what he took away from us, our sin, our guilt, and our shame, but what he gave us. So understand this, is that when Christ died for us and he rose again and we put our faith in him, we have forgiveness, we have salvation, we have eternal life. He took away from us our sin, our guilt, and our shame. So he takes away what is bad, and he gives us what is a blessing. 
He takes away what is bad in our life, and he gives us a blessing. But we have to say, I don't want this anymore. You ever hold on to something too long, and you don't need it anymore? Your wife has been bugging you to get rid of it, but you won't get rid of it? Why? Because we, you love it so much, you know you should get rid of it, you know it's, it's no longer useful, but you've grown attached to it, and you really should get rid of it, but you don't. It's the same way here. You know, Christ is promising us salvation, eternal life, a life of blessing and protection, and yet we still kind of hold on to the things that we like because we've grown too accustomed to it. Or worse, where it's so familiar to us that to leave it would be frightening. But we need to trust in Jesus. He's taken away things, but he's also given us things. It says that we have been taken from where we are and seated in heavenly realms. And now what does that mean? You're like, I'm seated in heavenly realms. What does that mean? Like, I'm actually seated in here, so like, how can I be seated in heavenly realms? To be seated in heavenly realms means that you have a place in heaven that cannot be taken away. That there's a seat reserved for you. So when you get to heaven, like when you get there, you won't be looking for a seat going, I, I wonder if I signed up early enough for the Sunday service to be here. And truth is, you had plenty of room because a lot of people stayed home today because it was cold. But you won't be going, where's my seat? Because when you get to heaven, there'll be a seat reserved for you because you belong to him and you are saved and you have a place in eternity. So we know that we are seated with him. When it says that we are seated with him in heavenly realms, it means that we will spend eternity with Christ. That we, when we pass from this life to the next, that we will have a place in eternity. Our life will not end any longer, but that we have a place with God forever. Furthermore, it means that we have audience, an audience with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Before, when we were sinful, we couldn't even go in there. Kind of look at it this way. It's kind of like if you've ever gone to a fancy restaurant and that you uh, maybe were wearing blue jeans and a T-shirt, and maybe things were stained from the farm or whatever, and you look to go into this fancy restaurant, and they stop you at the door and say, I'm sorry, you're not dressed properly to be able to be here and enjoy the benefits of this place. You get sent away. Heaven is holy. Where God is is holy and sacred and just. And for us to come in sinful with our sinful attire and our sinful clothes, we could never be admitted access. But when we are saved, it says that saints are given a new robe. They are given a new name. They are given a new identity in Christ. They are no longer sinful. They are no longer outcasts. But now they have access to the very throne room of grace. So we have access to the throne room of grace through prayer. That because of our relationship with Christ, we are now in the heavenly realms in our ability to appeal to heaven and to see God answer on our behalf. We didn't have that before. So understand today is that he took us from where we were to where he is now. We have those things in heavenly realms, but we don't have to wait to be able to enjoy the benefits of the heavenly realms. That while we're here on this earth, too, while we walk in this life, we have the charis, the gifts of God's grace unto us. We have the joy of our salvation. He's given us the fruits of the Spirit to be uh, at work in our lives. He has given us the gifts of the Spirit, His protection and provision. We have favored status as followers of Jesus, favored in the eyes of God. And his grace is upon us in all things. It says that he saved us and set us apart for the good works that he intended for us to do. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up front as we get ready to close this service.
When it comes to receiving what God has for you, you have to give up what you have in order to get what God's giving. We have to say, I don't want what I used to have. I don't want the life that I used to have. And instead, I want to follow Jesus. We can only be raised up to life in Christ if we die. Resurrection is only for those who have died to sin and are made alive in Christ. This only happens when we acknowledge our sin and need for a Savior. It's like, well, I don't need a Savior. You know, I've gone to church all my life. Maybe you were raised on the catechism. Maybe you were raised on Awana. You might say, well, I know all the verses. Yes, but understand that you can be dead and not know it. What are you talking about, Pastor Dan? How can I be dead and not know? In other words, you don't think of God. You don't consider God. God's not a part of your life. He's not something, someone you pray to, someone you go to, someone you look to. You can be literally just sitting here listening and not even know what I'm talking about. Because why? You're just dead to that. But today, you can be made alive in Christ. And it's acknowledging our sin and our need for a Savior. And asking for forgiveness. And we confess our sins and we confess our faith in Christ and choose to devote our life to following Jesus. There can be no ambiguity. You're either a follower of Jesus or not. Either you're a Christian or you're not. Either you love God and you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, or you don't. It's pretty simple. And let's take the lesson from Eutychus this morning. Eutychus was more spiritually alive in death than anyone who doesn't know Jesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. Eutychus died. He was a believer, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Listening to Paul's message, he died in a church service. Everybody knew where he was going. He was more spiritually alive than someone who doesn't know Jesus. Someone who doesn't have his faith in him. But Eutychus was raised from the dead. He slept during the preaching of the word, and it resulted in physical death. Waiting to respond to preaching of the word can be a matter of life and death. We sometimes say, don't sleep on this, right? Don't sleep, don't wait, right? Don't wait on this. We are sometimes tempted to think we have plenty of time to get right with God. We have plenty of time to be religious. We have plenty of time to be spiritual. But if you haven't been noticing the world that we live in today, we're noticing that time's really short now, don't we? Things are getting worse by the day. So it's all the more important not to wait. Not to to think that we've got all the time in the world. Because the truth is we don't. And now is the day. Today is the time to hear the preaching of the word and to let it go just, instead of it just something that kind of just passes by your ears, letting it come into your ears, into your mind, and into your heart. This morning, ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Do I really love Jesus? Or am I just a churchgoer? Someone who goes to church, enjoys the conversations, who likes the people, but I don't really think about God outside of here. This morning, I would challenge you to let the preaching of the word get into your heart and be serious about following Jesus. Can we just close our eyes this morning? Listen, today, as we've been talking about the Word, and we've been sharing this somewhat humorous story, there's a, a significant truth we've got to get a hold of, that we were all dead in our sins. And some of us are still waiting to 
to be made alive today. That one day we'll all stand before God and we'll all be challenged with the thought whether or not he'll see all that we've done and all that we've ever done or will he look at us and will he see what Jesus has done in our life. This morning, I want you to challenge you to be made alive in Christ. To decide to put feet to your faith and have it be living and active. So this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. The word's been preached. It's been shared. Or you could say, well, that was interesting. That was boring. That was, that was nice. Or you could say, wow, this really kind of hit me right where it hurts. And I need to rethink about some things and think about where I'm at. I would challenge you to think about those things right now. Where are you at with Jesus? Where are you at with him? Do you recognize your need for a Savior today? If that's the case, I just want to simply challenge you with this thought. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today. Turn away from the old way of life and choose to follow him. As with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you if you want to receive Jesus today. You've heard people preach before. You might have sat in many services like this. You might have sat in church your whole life. But you've never decided to, actually decided to follow Jesus with a, a confession saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to be a Christian today. I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Today, I want to give you that opportunity with no one looking around, heads bowed and eyes closed. And you say, today, pastor, today I'm going to choose to go from death to life and follow Jesus. If that's where you're at, just simply say, you know what, pastor, that's me. I've never prayed to receive Christ as Savior, but today I want to do that. I want to be a Christian today. If that's where you're at, just raise your hand we'll pray. Give God this moment. I want you to think about what's happening today and be honest between you and the Lord. Because whether it's here or in heaven, we'll all be faced with that question one day. Then let's pray. Lord, we just thank you today that your word is living and active. And I pray today, Lord, as we've heard it today, Lord, among your people, I pray that, Lord, as we listen, Lord, may it not cause us to simply nod off or doze off. Lord, may we be uh, living and active for you. I pray that every person who who calls Christ a Savior today would, would truly live each day alive in you. Lord, loving you, serving you. Lord, uh, thinking of you, praying to you, Lord, walking with you, being obedient to you, Lord. You've called us to do great works in your name things that you have ordained since the beginning of time, I pray today you would awaken us to life and that we would live it for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, help us to live this and to walk it out in faith today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.